Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast, recorded live from the Ruby Barn on Main Street here in Suffield, Connecticut. This is your host, Sean Devine, and I'm barely known on Twitter. Well, today I'm not the host, I'm the guest. So who's the host going to be? It's me, Eric. <laughs> Sounds like the little like angel or devil on my shoulder talking. Hi there. It's me, Eric. Your conscience. All right. So it's it's your episode. You wanted to uh you wanted to do an episode where you were the host and I was the guest, so it's all mm-hmm. yours. Yeah, this was so this is kind of my uh like my wish, my my big my big one day I'll be a real boy kind of thing. And I'm, I, um, I'm your pony? You're my pony. <laughs> That's oh man. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, it was, this was just kind of a, um, we've been listening to you, uh, weekly now for several months and I feel like we've really gotten to know you, but have we? This week we're going to take a look into the background of the man who is allegedly barely known and make him a little bit better known. Ooh. Will I have to change to better known on Twitter? No, you can have that. Um, so let's actually. I, you you leaked this to me one time uh, as we were as we were saying goodbye after a show, and um, I, w- <laughs> I would like you to. Re- can you retell the story of uh, just barely known? Why you're barely known on Twitter? Well, yeah. So I I used to have a different name, maybe two different names. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, just I don't remember the exact time, but but I had I had always wanted a a funny sign-off if I had a radio show. And I had no radio show. Um, and nearly no prospects of a radio show. The only thing I had was a voice that people usually say would be good for radio. Um, so I think that people, when I was a kid, and then I guess post-puberty once my voice became this, all that chattering about a radio show got me thinking about how to, to sign off if I had one. And uh, so I've thought about that for years. And uh, then I started to listen to lots of podcasts. And when I heard, you know, some people have a sign off, some people uh, don't. And sometimes or often they talk about how to reach them on Twitter at the end. So anyways, I was on a run, I think one day and uh, uh, listening to a podcast and heard someone sign off with their handle on Twitter. And it popped into my head. Wouldn't it be hilarious if the like the Twitter handle itself was a joke inside of the standard, you know, I'm blah, blah, blah on Twitter. So anyways, barely known seemed like the best joke and it, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't taken. So I, uh, at that moment I decided I had to have a podcast someday just to, you know, use the, uh, I, I feel like this podcast is the destiny of my Twitter handle. That's basically mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Yeah. It, you, you have a, a bit of a self-fulfilling, uh, Twitter name. <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So now I can't, it, it's still my favorite Twitter name. You know, some jokes are, uh, you know, they're funny for a little bit and then you look back and you're like, Oh, what did, what did I do? It, crack, uh, it cracks me up every, every episode, it, uh, <laughs> especially since you told me that it was like, you came up with the name intentionally for when you would have a radio show and, um, here you are and here, there it is. So it's like I'm, I'm, I'm living things backwards, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, you, it's, you're just like Benjamin Button, but with, you know, Twitter names. It's like I learned how to program after being at, you know, going through the whole corporate hierarchy. I, I went, mm-hmm. you know, the other direction. Same deal with mm-hmm. my Twitter handle to uh, podcasting. So uh, let's talk about that. I know that uh, you've mentioned that you didn't start programming until um, later in your life. Um, why is that? Well, I, I, it's a, I think because I was good at things that made 
uh, money more easily when I was younger, I think is the, is the easy answer. I was always sort of, uh, um, I had some aptitude, I'd say, in things related to programming. So for example, I'm, I'm quite good at Excel. I'm a pretty good analyst. I'm you know, pretty good with statistics, you know, all things that people would generally correlate with, with a programming skill. But when I was in college, so I guess two things. So one is I didn't go to an engineering school. I went to uh, Babson college outside of Boston, which is usually known for being a school about entrepreneurship. Um, so it's sort of a mix of kids from Eastern Massachusetts and, um, kids that are family members of uh, families that own very large businesses and then people from all over the world that are in similar situations. And so anyway, so I, I went there and, and majored in, in entrepreneurship and finance and, and, uh, nearly graduated. And, uh, which, which is a hilarious story for another we're time. Gonna, we're going to put a pin in that one. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's my, one of my favorite stories in the world to tell. So I uh, thought I graduated, actually. And it was in entrepreneurship and finance. And uh, I, in my the, the second half of my freshman year, um, got a job selling web, uh, I guess, like web development services for a company in Boston. And I was pretty good at it. And like that one thing led to another from from selling web development services for a, a company in Boston as a freshman in college to leaving college after three years and then having a, a pretty good career that went from, you know, selling to business development for startups to starting a software company to running the consulting division of a bigger company to being uh, uh, one of the top couple guys at a fortune 500 company, all sort of in that like business track. And, uh, and anyways, kind of throughout that, I, I was somewhat technical, but not a programmer and, uh, uh, sort of perpetually frustrated that I didn't have the, that I was sort of missing some skills that I thought were important. So, um, when, uh, when I left Conway, the, the like fortune 500 job, um, and I had a little bit of time, I wanted to do a project that I usually would have had people to help me with cause I had you know, relatively large teams in those jobs, but I didn't, I just had me. And, uh, so I learned how to hack some, uh, web scraping code together, uh, with Ruby. And I mean, when I say hack, I mean, capital hack. And, uh, that was, uh, let's see, that was four years ago right now. And I didn't, I wouldn't call that programming. I mean, I was like barely, uh, barely managing to tell the computer how to do some things that I was interested in doing. But anyways, then I, I uh, did that just for uh, about six weeks, four weeks, and uh, then ended up taking a, a, another big company job as a head of strategy for, for a logistics company in Chicago. And uh, didn't program while I was there because I was back in sort of the usual, um, uh, you know, scare quotes, executive deal. But then when I left that to start um, the companies that I own now, we uh, we wanted to do some things and... Uh, those things we couldn't buy off the shelf. And I said, you know what? I, I remember those four weeks in the summer after Conway and I kind of could figure out how to do some things. Maybe I'll figure out how to do this. And, uh, you know, cause we didn't have a lot of money and we didn't have any people around to do these things. So at that point, and that was, um, that was about two and a half years ago now. Uh, this began the summer of Sean coding. Yeah. Right. I decided I was going to figure out if, if, if I could program and, uh, you know, from, from then till now I went from being, I mean, a novice is novice to being okay. You know, probably pretty good. Now. 
So um, yeah, it's interesting that you said uh, you cut your teeth on a web scraper because that is how I started with Ruby as well. And I'm wondering how common that is because I was like I was a designer first and I was kind of a sales guy and uh, I had to write a web scraper too. So I think um, probably pretty common. Yeah, uh, it, it seems like uh, you you go down this path of oh, I know I want to get this thing off of this website, but there's nothing like I don't know what I have to do for it. So it's like oh, I'll just write a script for it. That'll do it. So. Yeah, because I mean a lot of the most interesting things aren't available via like a web service, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, the, the things that are interesting are the things that people don't have already. All, all the things that are in web services people have already. So, you know, I think that uh, at least for me, that was, that has generally been the impetus around, you know, any sort of automated web <laughs> scraping is, mm-hmm. you know, there is something that is sort of structured or not quite structured or such a, such a small audience for it that it's not like it'd be cool with the web two O API crowd. Right. And therefore like, what, what are you going to do except you know, either hire people to assemble databases, which which would cost a fortune, or tell the computer to do it. Yeah. Uh, do you remember what you were what you were scraping? Uh, yeah, I do. I intentionally didn't say, which which makes for bad, uh, makes for bad podcasting. That's perfectly uh, fine. <laughs> uh, we don't need to go into that. Uh, do you, Do you remember what you used? I uh, I do, and, and I think this is a good story. So. I, uh, everything that I was doing then, um, uh, did not rely on any pages that had JavaScript because I tell you what, if, if they did, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known what to do. I didn't know what to do at the time anyways, but I mean, it would have been really bad. Um, but thankfully they didn't need JavaScript. So I could use, I think it was mechanize. Um, and my guess is I use mechanize and then possibly one other wrapper to mechanize, but you know, mechanize is a, is a headless way to interact with with websites. And then I think I just used Nokogiri to, to actually do the, which, which I think is integrated with mechanized to do the, um, parsing of the, you know, the parts of the page that I wanted, to, uh, to parse into the parts. But, um, I've since done other web scraping projects, all sorts of them actually, including, so I made a, a, uh, and this was back before QuickBooks, uh, API was okay. And it's just okay now. I, I thought that it was better than it is, but it, right now it's okay. But it used to not be all that good, and it didn't include a couple of like key features that we needed in our business. So I made a a like web scraping uh, form entering little robot um, that used Firefox because Firefox would work with um, uh, work with the QuickBooks website to do all of our bookkeeping for the company. Um, and, uh, it was on a computer in the office and it used water, which is why I'm bringing up the story. So water is, a um, like that's W A T I R. It's a gem that uh, allows you to drive a browser, um, with Ruby. Have you used it before? I have not. It's pretty awesome. So if, if ever you come across a situation where you need to automate interaction with a website that doesn't have an API and uses JavaScript. So, um, JavaScript or or I'd say something else where if you're using anything but a standard browser, it's not going to like you. Right. So, so if you need to actually like have a mouse move and actually fake, like not fake um, input, but actually fake a mouse moving and a keyboard being typed. Yeah. So, so one of a couple reasons. So one would be if you need the website to think you're a person sitting at a computer, Mm -hmm. that'd be like reason one. And the second would be if you need the full browser to uh, 
be able to interact with the website successfully. Um, so usually that's a JavaScript issue. And I'd say the third, and, and this, this is important for, I think, debugging is if because of the nature of the website, especially if it's interactive, if seeing the page uh, change as you interact with it is helpful to the development process, then also water is good. Which, which sometimes is a thing, right? Like any website that's going to change as you as you enter data or change select boxes or move your mouse or whatever. Um, if you can't see those changes, it can be very hard to debug what's going on. That's interesting. So you just kind of, you set up a, like a, just an automated thing and you just watch it go through the process so you don't have to like waste your arms or, or whatever. Yeah, you, it, well, yeah, because if, well, if you're automating it, then, um, it, well, so these are things where maybe you could use like headless water, you know, which would be mm-hmm. like a headless webkit. But then it can be hard to develop in that environment for these websites because then you can't see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd hit a bug because the hover didn't happen long enough and their JavaScript was slow and like good luck seeing that if you can't gotcha. see it. So those are the three reasons to use water and that I've seen at least. So, oh, wow. so that would be basically instead of... Um actually getting user testing like having standing over somebody's shoulder you can kind of fake that with water too yeah you could fake it with water and sometimes you just need that for your own for develop for for testing the script that does the scraping itself so like for example if i've got a script that's going to enter data into quickbooks and quickbooks old website was super finicky then like if it was throwing errors and i couldn't see what the browser looked like at the time of the error it's super hard to figure out what's going wrong where at, but with water, since it's driving like a real instance of Chrome or Safari or or um, Firefox, you can see what was on the screen at the time and when, where the mouse was, and that's super helpful because you can go, oh, I get it. Like there's a problem with the DOM or with their site registering that DOM event, and I need to like jiggle the mouse there like virtually <laughs> in, in order for it to get what's going on. Right. Um, oh, uh, but Flash, like older Flash sites too. This yep. would be super helpful. Now, it, 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 you can do, um, with Selenium, which is under the hood in water, you can do things where you're kind of looking at the, the browser as a, a kind of like an image map where you're moving through the, the that grid of spaces, which would be helpful for Flash. But most of the things that you would do with water are much more DOM-centric. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, uh, use this selector to find the the select boxes pick this or select uh, uh, input guys and then you know take the second and select the fourth item named this it's that sort of stuff so so anyways so that that was a long answer to a short question of what did i use to do web or web scraping but i think that the the interesting thing for me is that i've used that approach now a lot of times so in other words, it, it, it's the first thing that I did, and I was awful at it. I mean, really awful. I've gone back and look at, looked at the code, and it was just atrocious. Um, but since then, I've written a lot of, of apps that in one way or another are sort of doing something similar, either like scraping data or um, automating some sort of process where an API didn't exist yet. Do you, do you find yourself kind of uh, enjoying and auditing like what you're doing now? Like that... The, the scraper that you're writing now against the scraper that you had just written and because it seems like you you have done this a couple of times do you enjoy like the looking at your progress i do can you, can you gauge that yeah i i enjoy doing something similar again mm-hmm. um so I, i'm sort of the type of person that likes to that doesn't mind throwing things out and starting again work-wise 
And, uh, you know, I like that. I, I like the sort of repetition. I like the idea that you can do the same thing again and again. And, right. and Cause you're not, you're not really throwing, you're throwing out the code. You're not throwing out the way you figured out how to write the code. So with a clean slate, you can kind of take what you know now and maybe do it better. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, it's good. Um, are, are there any other things in, in your day to day or week to week or month to month that where you have that opportunity to like redo something? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think people have that opportunity more than they think they do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause I think people complain about this a lot with their, with their day jobs. And I think that's a fair complaint, right? They say, well, I'd like to be able to refactor X, Y, or Z, but I can't cause the man is making me, you know, build this new stupid thing. And, you know, I think that's, that's true. So I, I get the complaint, but, um, f- for me, I think it's so important to feel that, that, um, to experience that feeling of making new things and like starting with the, you know, the, I kind of see programming as like, you know, playing with a rock garden. It's like starting with uh, the, just a bunch of sand and raking it clean and then placing the things that like, for me, it's so important that, that I would do it outside of the job. If, um, the job didn't afford for me to do that. Uh, at a given time, given, you know, the pressures of producing new stuff or, or mm-hmm. the the problems with the code base or whatever. So for example, um, I was feeling some stress earlier this week about this and that. And I decided I wanted to do what you just said, which is go and do something again, just to feel that feeling of doing things and, and finishing things, which I think is, I, I'm going to get back to in a minute. So I went to the Ruby quiz website. Have you ever been there? I've not, um, but I, I did see you posting these. It's... So Ruby quiz is super interesting. It's, it, I, uh, it was going on way before I was programming. So I started to program in 2012, I guess, really. And the Ruby quiz was going on in 2004 and probably to 2005 or six. And, uh, so this was like pre rails even, I guess. Right. Yeah, right that, around the time the rails right around the time if not uh, probably not popular or or as as widely adopted yet yeah, yeah i don't think rails was till 2005 so about the same time that the dhh was work starting to work on rails uh james edward gray the second um hosted this thing called the ruby quiz and i don't really know the backstory on it but he would post a problem to the uh, a mailing list uh you know back when mailing lists were more of a thing i think and it was uh, kind of like a medium-sized problem. I wouldn't say easy, and I wouldn't say ultra-hard. The sort of thing you could finish well if you spent uh, four hours on, and then maybe if you, you know, if you had to, you could hack together a halfway okay solution in like an hour and a half. And anyway, so we'd post these problems, and then people would email to the mailing list their, or maybe to him directly, their solution. And then he would read all of the solutions and then sort of summarize what people did and uh, post that summary along with links to all of the solutions. I'm not sure if they were in the order that they were submitted or in the order, like if he picked victors. Um, but but he, he kind of did. I mean, he kind of said which ones he thought were, were the most clever. They're like highlights. Yeah, exactly. I'm, uh, I'm remembering this because... Uh, there's there's one that you posted about this week and that uh, kind of toggled my memory. I had mentioned that I had did uh, Secret Santa app last uh, like last December. I happened upon one of the quizzes was a Secret Santa application. Right? One of the one of the two that I just did. 
Yeah. Yep. And I had actually modeled a lot of what I'd done off of his highlights from uh, from that report. I had found that and I used it as a uh, just a resource. So oh, that's interesting. Still around. Yeah. The Secret Santa app one was pretty fun. So the idea it's is you, you have a a bunch of people and or a list of people and you have a couple of rules around um uh, who can be assigned to who in terms of secret Santa. And like the, the, I think the main rule was that a family member couldn't be assigned to another family member. Hmm. Uh, you know, so two people with the same last name basically couldn't be each other's secret Santa. And, uh, and he gave you this, this input file and then you had to uh, spit out the assignments. I think actually he asked for uh, emails to each person with their assignment, but you know, whatever the, the key problem was assigning the people. And, uh, Anyway, so I hadn't done the problem before this week, but so to your question about, you know, do I go back and do something again to feel the feeling? So I hadn't done that problem, so it wasn't quite that, but I knew that it was a relatively short problem that would just sort of test my end-to-end programming skills in a way that I would be finished at the end, which which was what I was actually looking for. Right. You you wouldn't feel rushed and you would feel satisfied with your solution. That's right. Yep. I I think that's really important to have in like in your week to week, having something completed, having something that makes you feel that will will help you get to the next week a hell of a lot easier. I totally agree. I think I like if I was grading my like life performance, I would give myself like a D on this one. I don't (laughs) think I which is actually why I did these Ruby quizzes. So the the idea that I would spend four hours in the middle of the night programming a problem that I hadn't, you know, that was completely abstract for my purposes, right? Like I did, I was not actually in need of assigning secret Santas. I just, but, but I did it just to feel the feeling at the end of being done. Like I wanted to say, Oh, I did something the right way that I'm proud of and I'm done. There's nothing more to do. What you did there was effectively play a video game. Like that is the same behavior. Like you, once it's done, it's done. You get no value from it being done other than it's done and you've kind of had fun and you feel good at the end of it. Ah, oh, that's super smart. I think that that's exactly right. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, think that, I think that for me, the Ruby quiz right now is a video game for me where I, I can escape into it and say, even if I've got like 400,000 things in my like day-to-day life that are not done, um, I am done with this thing. I, uh, that, that's really interesting because I, I wish I could do that a lot more. I'm trying to be away from my computer when I'm not working in the day. Um, mostly because my arm has just started falling apart, which is oh, great. No. Yeah. It's, I don't know what's going on. Related to programming? Related to life, I guess. I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's been this thing that's just been with me all the time. And now that I have health insurance, I'm like hyper aware of it. And so I've been trying to take care of it right now. I'm just propping it up on a warm ice pack that I've just used up um but so i'm trying to not program or, or hit a keyboard at all at at night um so like in the daytime everything is c- relatively comfortable i'm like walking around and i'm like doing everything i can to not tax my arm so then when i get home i have been playing a lot more video games to get that same type of like that oh cool i, I did a thing that feels good um and i think that that is really uh, it's been really helpful just for my general, like not, not only having these like much more achievable goals in the day, but also having something at night that is not just achievable, but consistently achievable. Like it, it's, I paid them $60 to make something that is consistently fun and achievable. 
Mm. So, yeah. So I don't know where I was going with that. This is your show, Sean. Um, <laughs> You're flipping it around. Well, I, I <laughs> so, took us here, so I'm going to finish by saying that. So you know, I so I did these Ruby quizzes in order to back to your question about about do I sort of repeat something in order to get practice? Sort of in part to get practice. Like for example, I like making new gems. Like I like saying bundle gem blah blah and uh, writing the readme and um, configuring the gem spec. And in part because when I do that, it's an opportunity to sort of like test each little part to say, uh, is there a, is there like a new better way to do this now? Um, um, and it's very familiar. It's like, I like know how to do the whole process. So I don't have any stress really about doing it. And that affords the opportunity to like dive into some details um, to say, Hey, is there, is there a new better way to attack this thing? And I suppose if I was, if I was smarter, I could get this feeling from just working on the things I have to work on all day. But, um, you know, I've found that, that at least sometimes uh, it can be helpful to just break off a separate problem that's unrelated to anything practical and work on it just to, to, to not have the feeling of satisfaction get complicated with the sort of broader difficult context that the real stuff is embedded in. That right there is super smart. I, there should be a chunk of like a chunk of the week that's dedicated to something like that. I think that'll make, that'll be just a general life improvement for most people. So, and they're kind of hard too, which is fun. Yeah. I mean, like there's in the secret sand app, for example, um, I wouldn't say that a lot of it was hard, but, um, one part is a little tricky, which is, um, you can have infeasible lists. So, so for example, if you have the rule that, um, you know, people can't be assigned to each other or to, to family members rather. Mm-hmm. And then there's a list of only two people, like a husband and a wife with the same last name, then it's infeasible. You can't, assign that. And obviously that sort of, that example is easy to see, but if it's a big list that can be a little bit more or a medium sized list that could be slightly more complicated or an entire, like if you're dealing with an entire family's secret Santa, like yeah. if you're doing with like, just, yeah, that, that's interesting. And then there's uh, like a shuffle. So that was a thing. There's also like the randomness, like maybe you don't want it to be deterministic. You want to make sure because it could be that the same group of people are going to be involved every time. So if it was the same secret Santa list, it wouldn't be too secret anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so sort of shuffling that was interesting, you know, um, did you it, find that you wanted to change the, uh, like change the requirements just because that was silly? I like the, it's funny you say that. So I didn't have, I felt compelled to sort of write a solution that would enable arbitrary requirements. Mm-hmm. So for example, like the, in my solution, you could add in any rule you wanted to that would um, prohibit the assignment of one person to the other or would invalidate a set of assignments for some reason. And so like, I didn't actually use that capability. So I didn't say, I'm going to, you know, decide that people with the same number of letters and their first name can't be assigned to each other. Um, or that, you know, the, the set of assignments, uh, you know, can't be, uh, alphabetical. Um, so I didn't do that, but, uh, you could have done it easily, which is all I actually cared about. <laughs> I wanted, <laughs> I wanted that you could be able to. Neat. So anyway, yeah, so, yeah. I, I like that, and I and I think that that's something that should be encouraged. It just um, maybe maybe is there a modern day like um, Ruby quizzes? Well, so I was thinking about that as I was doing it. That I 
I could imagine. So there was like a competition element to the Ruby quiz, mm -hmm. which was, um, you know, the solution wasn't posted. Like he would give, uh, uh, James would give, and it wasn't just uh, James's quizzes, but he, he ran it for, for the majority of the time. But anyways, he would give like some way for you to tell if you got the right answer, uh, like something you could stick into a test if you had one. Um, but, but, uh, not a solution. So people would be sort of competing to uh, provide a solution that was both accurate and deemed the, the, the best or, you know, one of the best, um, for me, I don't care at all. Mm -hmm. So like the, the contest aspect of it, um, absolutely does not matter to me. It's sort of like, um, the, if you've ever read the New Yorker in the back of the New Yorker for years now, they've had the caption contest for their cartoons and w uh, the way that it works is there's, uh, sort of three stages. Stage one is they'll put a cartoon up and then say like, what should the caption be? And stage two is they'll print some of the finalists, some of the best captions that they've received from readers, uh, and then stage and, and ask for people to vote. And then stage three is they show which one won. That's so, a good workflow. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So in, in, it's been around for a while, like pre-internet, uh, or at least maybe the internet existed when it started, but they didn't do it online. So it's, a it's sort of like a week to week thing, right? So stage one happens like, like a, a cartoon is in stage one in week one and in stage two in week four and in stage three in week six or something. Um, but for me, I don't care about actually submitting the jokes, but I love to come up with the jokes. Like I like, so I'll take an old New Yorker and look at the, at the cartoons, whether in, they're in stage one, two or three, I actually like stage two, the best where you can see the finalists and I'll come up with my jokes for it. And then just compare them to what other people said. And I don't care if they judge mine or if other people judge mine. So is that when you jump in? Like when, when you can see the other finalists, you can say, oh, I'm as good as they are. Well, right. So, so I think that that, like, I think that there's something analogous between, uh, the, uh, sort of how I feel about the New Yorker cartoon caption contest, which is like, I mean, I think it's sort of fun to submit. I just don't care much. And I, and with the Ruby quiz, if it was going on now, I think I'd submit my answers probably. And I kind of would care about, um, getting it right or winning, but not as much as I do about, um, uh, the, the experience that I have. And the trade-off is that it's super fun to read other people's at the end. Um, so you know, it's, it's sort of like trading the contest for the immediate feedback. And I think I would pick the immediate feedback. So I'm um, into your original question about, is there something going on now? Uh, I don't know of anything, but even if there was, I think I probably prefer the Ruby quiz because there's this, you know, database of interesting responses and commentary on them to compare yourself to, hmm. which is pretty cool. Well, I think, um, right now would be a good time for us to, for you to tell me about something that you love. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm going to tell you about code ship. So I had the, uh, um, not to put you on the spot, but did you listen to last week's episode? I did not. Okay, so I interviewed the CTO of CodeShip, a guy named Mo, and uh, it was a good, I really enjoyed it, and I had them on because I'd, I've read these um, these sponsor spots now a number of times, and I started to like wonder more about the company, which is maybe how advertising works, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> time number seven, you start to go, I wonder what the deal is with this. So anyways, I, I had used the product, but I decided to to learn more about the company, and it was it was good. I, I, I learned... Uh, 
I mean, I learned a bit about them and a little bit more about, about what the product does, but more, more than anything, just learned about sort of, you know, what makes them tick and what they're trying to do. But anyways, let me tell you about them. CodeShip makes continuous delivery simple. So they've, they've switched to this continuous delivery term instead of uh, continuous integration. How do you feel about it? I think that that's, uh, it's an interesting choice because continuous delivery is more of an emphasis on like what you're actually doing with it. Like I am, I'm deploying, I am putting something out there for other people. Um, integration is what is known. So they have a bit of a, you know, a bit of work ahead of them to get that a familiar term, but I like it better as a term. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it doesn't sort of ring of marketing, um, douchiness. Yeah. And it, it, it ties in with more of what they do because it's not a continuous integration. It's you can do everything with yeah, just yeah. just with one thing. So it's it's continuous and you're constant. Whatever that delivery is, uh, is up to you. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it puts emphasis on the deployment to production and the syncing of master to production, which I think is is smart. So, anyways, um, they make that simple. Um, uh, you can set up your continuous delivery or continuous integration as it's also known as a solution on CodeShip in a few easy steps. And then your software will automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. So for people that haven't used a CI um, solution before, here's how it works. You uh, code in your, uh, you make your change to your application. You commit it to your repository in GitHub or Bitbucket. Um, then there's a hook that, say GitHub fires off to CodeShip that says, Hey CodeShip, I've got to change. CodeShip then pulls the app in, builds the app, just like you would um on your local machine to do the test, but it's doing it, you know, on a on a uh, Amazon box. So it builds the app, runs uh, your entire test suite, and then depending on what happens in that test suite, you can decide to do something. So like let's say it fails. You can, you know, have it talk to Campfire, send you an email or whatever. Uh, if it succeeds, you can tell it to do something else like uh, deploy to production use the, using the following instructions or, or whatever. So it's sort of like a, you know, a workflow, not sort of, it is a workflow system combined with like a cloud app building test runner. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe tests are just one of the things that you can run. You can also, you know, check for code quality. You can um, see if if uh, there have been any major changes to the code. Like you can run it against a couple of other services too. Which, off the top of my head, I should have prepared for that. No, that's but, right. Yeah, you yeah. can. You it can in turn hook into other things. Yeah, that either you make or other people make. Right. Uh, so even even if you're not writing tests, which you know you should, but. Uh, you can still get some value out of this by by having it check against your code or check your code against other metrics that will make you feel good about yourself. Yep. Yeah, and then the workflow is nice because you know instead of um, you know deciding yourself, well, if this happens, then I'll do that and and, and whatnot. Um, you can just tell CodeShip what to do when you test pass or fail, or there's some you know some metric is achieved or not in some other service. Um, and then, you know, have it deploy or, or just notify you. Um, so, uh, CodeShip has a free plan that you can start with. Uh, setup takes only a few minutes. They actually just changed the plan. Um, they told me about it on the last episode. I think you get a hundred builds for free per month in perpetuity now. 
which is pretty cool. Before it was like a time limited deal, and now it's like a um, freemium, so to speak, uh, where you know you always get some benefits, and then uh, those benefits improve uh, over time. And I think I think that they've got something going for uh, open source too, although I don't remember, so maybe not. Anyways, you can find out more about CodeShip at codeship.io slash 5x5ruby. And the reason you should go to that uh, website and then use the code 5x5ruby is that you get 20% off any plan for three months. If you use that code plus, you let them know that you're listening to this show. You can also check out their blog at blog.codeship.io to get updates. It's a pretty good blog. Uh, They spend a ton of time um, producing content and... uh, I can't even imagine how much because some of the content's pretty involved and it's pretty, uh, it's updated pretty regularly. Anyways, thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring the uh, Ruby on Rails podcast. Thanks, CodeShip. So I've got a testing a testing follow up on the uh, the Ruby quiz topic. Right. Hit me. So uh, especially given your book, which you should plug now while we're doing ads. Hey, Sean, I wrote a book. What's it called? What do I test? Where do I get it? What do I test dot com. How much does it cost? $34 right now. It's uh, still in the early release bit. So. Uh, scale of uh, 5 to 5, how awesome is it? Uh, 5. <laughs> Maybe even 5 and 5. Right. All right. It's, it's about 5 by 5. Um, that was stupid. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks. It's, uh, I, I, I'm not to put you on the spot, but um, I sent you a copy of it. and I've read like a third of it so far. It's a good third. Yeah, no, I'm enjoying it. Good there. Oh, thank you. It's, I'm. It's still kind of early. I'm getting fun feedback from it, and I, I just the people who are reading it are awesome. So, so I had a, um, I had a uh, an interesting sort of testing experience on this uh, Ruby quiz thing that I made me think of you. Ooh. Uh, so, you know, at this point, so in 2014, um, the. Uh, the culture around testing in Ruby is so strong that, you know, now there's even the culture about the backlash about the culture of the testing and the back, you know, it's like a whole, it's, it's got its own world. And, uh, um, you know, the debate about is, is TDD dead or, or whatever is, is funny because like no one's really actually suggesting the testing isn't good. They're like saying, is it like the Messiah or just like a really good buddy? Right. Is this one way that's been said to test? Is that is that way dead maybe-ish? So yeah, exactly. It's an interesting conversation that's happening. But if you go back to 2004 when they were, when the Ruby quiz first started, which like in some ways is not forever ago. I mean, it's a long time for programming, but it's not... Um. I don't know. It's not that long ago. And read through some of the comments. It is amazing how much testing wasn't in the Ruby community at the time. Hmm. So, for example, uh, if I went through... So there are 12 solutions to Ruby quiz number one here uh, that were submitted. I haven't looked through all of them, but I bet that only one has tests. One of the 12. Wow. Wow. And these are like the early adopter, you know, many like of the, what people would consider to be like the smartest Rubyist, but you know, so, you know, James Buck, uh, James Edward Gray, right? Like people that, that people know and, and would be seen as like testing pillars, I think for the most part, um, it, it, their solutions don't include tests. And it's not just because it's not because they weren't supposed to, it's because it wasn't really a thing. So for example, in, 
uh, in a comment in Ruby Quiz One solution, James Edward Gray says the following. He's talking about one of the solutions, and he says, Moses also makes thorough use of unit testing in his solution, which was a real eye-opener for people like me who haven't taken the time to learn Ruby's modules for this process. Whoa. Wow. I mean, talk about a time machine of a sentence. We are so spoiled right now. We are really, we, we have it very, very well off. Right. So like... So like here is, I think if someone is, is getting burnt out on the culture of, um, and sort of the know-it-allness and, and there is only one pathness of so many of the opinions, go back and read, um, something just like the, the summary of the Ruby quiz from 2004 and it'll like fix it. You go, Oh man, <laughs> James Edward Gray. Like, you know, I think many people, he's like the John Syracusa of Ruby, right? Like, like, <laughs> The smartest, likable, um, pedantic guy in the room, and and you know even he is like he, he's uh, amazed by the novelty of someone's unit test because he didn't know the Ruby module. Whoa, <laughs> what the heck? That's amazing. It's it's very like archaeological. You can go back and see what it was like back in my day. Well, and like Although don't feel bad close. about yourself. So yeah. like like I it, like that point as well. It's easy to to say, oh man, I look at other people, like, I think it's easy to feel this way if you open up a gem that's quite good. Like, if you read the Rails source code, this is a good example, I think. Um, I think finally now I'm at the point where there's there are not a lot of parts of the Rails source code where I would feel completely lost if I just happened into them. Um, but if you read the comments on a pull request it would be pretty, pretty easy to feel intimidated because it's like an act of God to get a pull request through without someone changing every single character of the thing. Um, and you can feel like, man, like, did I not wake up like, you know, on my second day on the planet, like with the ability to produce perfect pull requests while these guys did. And the answer was like, no, they've just been doing it. And you know, if you, for a long time slash it's easier to be the critic than the author. It's it's terrifying. I have uh, I've submitted one pull request to Rails. Um, it's super small. It's just like uh, better fixture fixture label interpolation mm-hmm. interpolation. Uh, so you can like reuse the label of a fixture throughout the like in other values. So mm-hmm. you could have like a like an Eric fixture and then use Eric at like Gmail dot com or something. Um, so you just use the label, and you can reuse that in defaults. It's silly. It's not necessary at all. But I thought it would be like I thought it was helpful whenever I was using it. So I, I put it in there. The most terrifying thing was going through all of the pull requests and seeing how everybody was torn apart, um, submitting <laughs> other tiny little things, and then like one the, the Saturday I, I submitted it like midnight Saturday and um, like one o'clock that Saturday it was it was uh, pulled in. Nice. Yeah, I was. I was Apparently, you're the guy that's born, and you know, and on on your second day, you know how to submit the perfect pull request. Well, I I I spent a lot of time going through all of those other pull requests and seeing what like what needed to be done, and it was also like two lines of code with supporting uh, with supporting tests. So, so a little tip on that for anyone that that feels like that's too much for them to get going on contributing to Rails, or I'd say to any other any other semi popular um, gem, 
is uh, make your full first pull request in the documentation, fix documentation, like fix the readme or fix, mm-hmm. uh, because one, uh, there's almost, usually it's a slightly different process for reviewing the pull request. And the process looks something like, hey, thumbs up three times, <laughs> Duh, merge. Um, <laughs> and the second is that uh, like pull requests can sometimes be they're often viewed skeptically by the maintainers because like they want to make sure that, that, that where they're not adding stuff where it's not needed or they're not complicating things that they understood before. Whereas, uh, the documentation fixes are almost always, um, appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, documentation fixes, typos, just anything that, that you find is a great way to kind of cut your teeth on that as well. Um, yeah. And maybe even opening up a, an issue for an idea. Like, worst thing they'll do is they'll close the issue because they're bothered by it. Like, that's it. Yep. Yep. So, um, I would like to change tracks is to... to um, so, we, we've, we went back to how you started working with Ruby. Um, how much of your day-to-day is actually Ruby and Rails? Uh, it ebbs and flows a bit. Um Right now, a decent amount, though. So, like, take yesterday. Yesterday, I probably... Um, I'm thinking about how long. I probably programmed for somewhere around eight hours yesterday. Ooh. All in. That's... Uh, I mean, that's that's an impressive, just in general. I don't Which is think, a lot. I can't remember the last time I actually had eight hours of straight programming, except for maybe actually yesterday. That's embarrassing. Um, well, I didn't. But, it wasn't straight programming. So, I did, like, uh, probably three hours in the morning and then three hours in the afternoon and then two hours last night. Um, gotcha. but eight total. And I, I wouldn't say that that's quite average. I would say I average a little less than that, but I probably average six days a week. So I, I bet I average six times. I think I average about 35 hours a week programming now. If I, was, if I was guessing, do, do you work with, um, any other programs? I do. Um, right now I work with one other. I have worked with others. Um, we don't all, like right now, uh, the guy that, uh, in, um, the other program in the company does not, um, we, we don't work on the same thing that often right now. Um, we have in the past, but I, a little bit at least, but I, I think neither of us are massively fond of, of pairing. Um, either literally like at the same keyboard or, you know, maybe even in the same project. Um, uh, what, yeah. um, what, what types of things do you enjoy in a, in a program you're working with? And then the opposite of that question, what do you not like? Well, I mean, I haven't worked with a lot, so I mean, I've worked with tons of people and I've, I've had jobs over the years. Most of my jobs have involved many, many people. So I've got an idea of like what I like in a collaborator, but I don't have, uh, an answer that's more specific to programmers. Hey, that's fine. Um, I think in terms of, but, but I'll, I'll try to translate it. So I think the things that are most important to me is that someone is a positive and a hard worker and smart. Um, but, but probably in order of probably in that order. So like I am a, a pretty positive person. I don't, um, I think some people would say optimist. I, I think that there's a slight difference between positive and being an optimist, but, um, 
you know, I, I, in other words, I, I just try to see the good in things and, and, uh, uh, try to, uh, uh, try to stay, you know, stay positive myself and have the team stay positive about what we're working on. And I don't really like to work with people that are negative, which can be hard with programmers because a lot of programmers are negative. Uh, I mean, is that an unfair judgment? Do you think? I think that's a fair judgment because, um, there, the, there's an expectation of programmers for them to translate. Like they're translators and creative thinkers and problem solvers. And there's a whole lot of responsibility put on them. And when they maybe aren't appreciated all that often, uh, you, they can get jaded, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think so. a lot of programmers feel superior themselves and, and the outside world, um, treats them like nerds to them at least, at least mm-hmm. that's how they feel and they resent it. And that's like a massive generalization, but like the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Por- the portion of the programming community that's like that isn't a great fit for me because uh, I'm not that way. And, uh, you know, I just don't, it's just hard for me to, it's hard for me to collaborate with someone that, that is, uh, it's not, it's not, that's not true. I prefer to <laughs> not, um, sort of swim upstream against sort of a negative, um, feeling sentiment. I, I just had to interview a couple of folks, and I think the, I, I didn't look at code quality nearly as much as um, I looked at their attitude. And the, the folks who like did a code review and their responses were more negative, I kind of filtered them out pretty quickly. Um, the, the folks who kind of phrased it in a way that, like, this is how we could improve it, and, and like had more of a forward-thinking and positive attitude towards just kind of crappy code. I, I appreciated that way more than anything that they produced. So I like, I like the paradox of, uh, I, I like to work with someone that sort of has the paradoxical combination of being very honest and being positive. Hmm. And that's a, it's, it's pretty easy to find one or the other, you know, I, I think that the word nice is generally the synonym for positive, but not necessarily honest. And I don't like that that much actually. Right. So they'll, they'll kind of like, they don't want to step on the daisies. They like, they tiptoe around things that, yeah. that should be addressed, but, but they're positive, you know, right. and then you get other people that are, you know, assholes, but, but right. Right. And, you know, they're being honest. They're seeing it as, as it is, except they don't understand that they're dealing with people and that, right. you know, so, so I, I'd say nothing matters more to me than that combination of positive and, and honest uh, second would be hardworking. Um, I think is I, I don't think that I was always a super hard worker. Um, I think actually I would, I maybe went the other direction when I was young, say from age 15 to 20 something. The fish years. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Although not for that reason. I think I was a, I think I was a smug, you know, know it all at the time. And, uh, anyway, some, sometime in my life I became a hard worker. I'm not sure how that happened. But like I, I definitely self-identify as a like positive, honest, hard worker, and I like to work with people that that sort of feel the same way, um, because otherwise you've got like you know uh, treadmills going different speeds, and you know my speed is like I like to work and I like to I like to feel like I'm cranking along, and uh, I think it can be learned. I don't think that that's like because because I learned how to do it. So I like I like to work with people that have decided that that's going to be a thing that they are too. Do you uh, do you find yourself teaching often? Like maybe not in the the normal sense, but in the kind of educating somebody about something. 
Oh, not programming wise, I don't. Um, in the rest of my life, I do. Um, you know, so interesting, interesting question to that business wise, I would have said I used to do that a huge portion of my life, like was spent, um, explaining things, either, you know, business concepts or strategies we were going after or a plan to do X, Y, or Z or the reason for a decision or, you know, whatever it is you have to explain to someone. Mm -hmm. Um, I do that a lot less now and I, um, just because of the nature of the the work that I do and the, the company that I have. And I think I miss it, actually. Um, well, I, I ask because I, I feel like those are connected. Like the, the um, patience to explain something in the right way um, is connected with being positive and also um, kind of honest. I think so. I, I think that the, if, you, if you build up those skills somewhere along the lines, you'll, you'll, the net gain is being positive and positive and honest i've been it's it's a interesting question for me because i um right now because i've been sort of looking for that because i used to do a lot of it and now just because of circumstances i don't and i've found myself missing it anyways my my new next door neighbor here in connecticut is the uh the varsity uh head football coach for like a um consortium of high schools here there are three high schools sort of um Voltron together to become like a big school to play, um, to play football. And anyway, so he's the head coach and, uh, we were at a cookout that he threw out his house. Um, which by the way, if anyone has neighbors that move in, uh, these people gave a master's class on how to handle the situation. They literally brought over cookies, set them on the door with a like, you know, little handwritten by a kid note that said like, you know, happy that you're here. Uh, and then walked over a few days later to invite us to a cookout at their house that was just their family. It wasn't even friends, really. Their family, like extended family, so say like a dozen and a half people, and went around to every neighbor on the street, uh, say like within four houses, and invited them to stop by to introduce themselves. Like, who does that? That's, a, that's amazing. I couldn't believe it. And there was no catch. It's not like, yeah, but they're weird. No, they're super nice, and they did that. Yeah, um, but they want you to buy a bunch of Tupperware. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Or sign into a timeshare. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There, was, there was no but. It was just a wonderful gesture by cool people. Anyhow, he's the head football coach, and uh, uh, he, I don't know if he detected that I was sort of interested in flexing this muscle or not, but he said, you know... Uh, I think you'd be helpful with the kids if you wanted to help with the team. And it's like a big team. It's like a, you know, a 70 kids try out big, you know, big, big team deal. And I think I may do it for this reason. Like, I think I may get involved for this year because I think I need an outlet because programming doesn't really provide that. It's like a great place to have amazing conversations with yourself and the, the sort of, uh, the community at large through the internet. But, that that sort of uh, teaching muscle doesn't really get exercised too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some there's a difference between solving a problem and imparting knowledge. I think and and <laughs> right. totally different totally different muscles. Um, so one I think one last subject I wanted to touch on was um, how you took over the um, Ruby on Rails podcast. It well it had been abandoned for a long time. It had. We're on what? What episode will this be? This is, um, I think it's 160. That's 20 episodes. That deserves something, right? You you picked up on now. You picked up on 141. 
or one forty. Is, is that right? Um, I don't remember. I'll look. So it's yeah. So so anyways, it, but it had been dead for years. So it it stopped being recorded like years before I ever wrote one line of Ruby. Um, so I don't know if it was in two thousand ten or two thousand nine, but it was a while ago. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. Um, I listened to, so I listened to a decent number of podcasts. I've always liked the radio. I was a huge Howard Stern fan growing up for, from basically 13, because I lived in um, upstate New York and we, we could get Howard Stern before he was nationally syndicated. Um, so I, I listened from then up until I'd say the last time I had a long driving commute, which was a few years ago. So I'd always been into radio and, you know, I, uh, you know, obviously have been podcast or have been programming now for a bit and guy that used to host the show mentioned on Twitter that, uh, you know, it was just sitting idle. And if anyone had any interest in it, then, you know, they should let him know. And I, I saw someone retweet it cause I don't think I follow him. And, uh, it just sent a, like one line email email saying, you know, I've got this Twitter handle that I've been waiting to use in the sign off on a radio show and I program in Ruby. So I think I'm your guy. And, uh, a couple other people were interested too. And, uh, we sort of did some back and forth and then I ended up, uh, taking it forward. I, uh, I think a lot of the reason was that I, I knew that I didn't have too much time to dedicate to it, but I uh, reached out to Dan Benjamin at five by five and said, you know, Hey, I, I just want to focus on the podcast. This isn't like you know, this isn't a job that I'm interested in doing. I just want to have an easy way to get it out to the world. Could I put it up on five by five? And, you know, he said, yes. So the combination of sort of my willingness to host the show and his, to give it a home that would, I think match, uh, what I hoped would be the sort of continued prominence in the show. Cause a lot of people still subscribe to it. You know, that's how it happened. It's great. Yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't done one before, so it's been a bit of a learning experience. You know, I, um, really? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's impressive. It, it, so I think episode one was probably like, it was fantastic. Well, episode, whatever. We're not going to talk about episodes anymore. Your first episode. Um, it, I think we're at the point where we can bookend it with your Twitter handle. Because <laughs> 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 we started with a story about it and with a story about it. But it's, um, I, I think the big reason why I wanted to just kind of turn this around on you is because a lot of us have kind of gotten to know you, like I said earlier, and um, we wanted to know a little bit more about you because you've been having some interesting people on here. Um, you have, we haven't had the chance to interview, you know, the interesting person who's been on every episode and you've been doing a really good job with the show. Again, this is uh, thank you to you for kind of just putting all this together and, and making it happen. So, yeah, well, you're welcome. So if I, 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 have you listened to like uh, more than half say of the episodes or around I, half? I only listen to the episodes that I'm on. So yes, <laughs> they're fantastic episodes. <laughs> no, I, um, I'm like behind by, uh, Daniel Daniel Jockett was phenomenal. Such a like a great idea for a guest because he's not a uh, Rails developer, but he that was just a great episode all around. I think you know I had him on because he's so he's not a a, a Ruby programmer, and I find it super interesting when someone sort of shares the the ethos of uh, sort of the open source ethos. Like they, they don't like to be held down. They want to be able to control their own destiny. They, you know, don't like big companies, at least many big companies. And then, uh, don't program in an open source ecosystem. 
Like, mm. I think that like it would make me crazy, like crazy. And it's it. Uh, I had him on to talk about that because he he seems like the kind of guy that absolutely could not take, um, um, sort of being under the thumb of Apple from a development standpoint. Um, and yet that's all he's ever done. And it, it's it, and it seems like a very pragmatic decision too. Like just, well, this is this is what I want to do, and this is the only way that I can do it. So I'm going to do it this way. And I'll deal with it. Yeah, and I, I appreciated that a lot. Well, and he, I think the second thing that he said um, about why was, and I don't know if this is like after the fact rationalization or or he thought this all along, but I, I think it's probably after the fact that at this point. He likes that everyone that programs in the Apple ecosystem sort of uses all the same things. Mm -hmm. So whereas with Ruby and Rails, you know, it's, uh, you know, we can cobble together whatever we want. We could, you know, write a gem ourselves to do something. We can use, you know, whatever. Um, We could use Carrier Wave or or Paperclip. We could use RSpec or, you know, Minitest or or not. you know, so so whatever we want to do, we could do. And he actually, so and I see that as a big benefit, he sees that as a negative as it relates to the culture of the community. And that he likes that everyone uses the same stuff in, in Cocoa Development. Um, in other words, like you're not going to, there wouldn't be a conversation about like, well, I use this gem and you use that gem or I rolled my own because like most people use the same stuff, at least according to him. Um and one, I was surprised by that. And two, uh, I was—I thought it was interesting that he put so much emphasis on sort of a shared experience as a reason for still liking Coco, because that made sense to me. I get that. And um, I, I think about the positive conversations I've had and the negative conversations I've had about just anything, mostly in like the Ruby and the Rails community. And the positive ones are generally, you know, they're about the things that I don't, or the, the things that I use. But they're like, congratulations, other person, for using the same thing that I use. So the negative ones are, well, why aren't you using this? This is what I use. This is how it works. And they're much more challenging, but they're also far more educational. Like, I get to, I have to explain my choice and I have to justify why I'm doing this thing. And it makes me, it, usually the answer is, well, it's just the thing that I found. I'm excited to try out this thing because you've made a good point. So it, it's nice having those conversations, and it's nice having, I think maybe one or two, di- or two or three different ways to do a, the same thing because you know it, it's the same, like Android iPhone like competition thing. Right. Um, because there are more than one ways. Well, I think if you look at the test framework situation in Ruby and Rails um, mm-hmm. compared to the test framework situation in in iOS development, I think it's a great example of how how that process works and that, you know, it used to be that the gripe about RSpec, um, well, that there, maybe there were multiple, but the main one that I heard was that it was a little too aggressive about monkey patching things and could cause unintended side effects by like jacking around with, uh, with some, um, Ruby standard library classes. Yep. Uh, this is a just heads up. This is a rat hole that we could go down for a really long time because I just started using um, RSpec daily, mm. and I, I'm having a great time, especially after your uh, your Twitter advice um, on some like how I'm how I needed to break things up differently. Um, if that's something that we should not even try and fit into this 
uh, this episode, well, by all means. Do you have to go this second? If not, let's just finish it. Sure. Uh, so I'm having I'm having a damn good time with our spec. Um, I'm in I'm using our spec one three right now, and so that's a bit challenging oh, because wow. yeah, um, none of the so let is not documented. Um, it, it's just it, it's it's pretty painful. The the old documentation site is on some yesterday and most of this week i've been having problems with just even loading the documentation uh so it's fun but i'm having a really good time hmm. it is it is solving problems that i wasn't necessarily aware that i had so i'm i'm building an api right now and um you but i i got really angry maybe two day or two weeks ago on on the twitter and uh, about how our spec by default stubs out the view response and um, you very, right. yeah, uh, very positively render it all. Yeah, it doesn't. It just it just stubs that out, and it just assumes that it does it fine. Um, this is a, a huge difference from you know mini tests and and what happens in in Rails, where the view is the response to the um, the action. So I had I had been used to being able to just do a basic um, this should be successful, and that that's kind of a really basic catch all to. Um, make sure that the view is rendering properly too. Um, I didn't know that, like for, for probably most of the morning that day, I didn't know that that was a thing and I assumed everything was working until I found out it wasn't working and I got mad. And um, you very uh, calmly popped in and said, nope, that's what view tests are for, especially if you're writing an API. And that was like, that changed the way that I was I was working on this. So Yeah, I mean, controller tests are just end at... Like once you once you realize that the furthest thing you should test is the status quote of the response, and that mm-hmm. anything beyond that you shouldn't. If you're hit, if you're saying render view, you're probably using something wrong. Like that was a big light bulb for me to yep. learn. Yeah, it, it's it's nice because now w- with that information, I was able to kind of batch all of my controller stuff um, into a standardized action set. So I've got the basic like basic restful stuff. Um, and that is just in one base controller, and everything inherits from that with a some some logic to grab the resource name, mm-hmm. and that's it. With shared expectations, it's done. Love it. Now, to be fair, I could do that with mini tests, and I, if if I was motivated to do that, I could do that with uh, mini tests if I wanted. But it was just nice that it just did it, and it just worked. So it'd be interesting to follow the the development of our spec from. You said you're at one four right now, right? Uh, yeah, uh, one one three something. Okay, so from there to our spec three, which was just released like this month, mm-hmm. and because what happened was our spec sort of had a good thing going. And maybe maybe as early on as as when you were using it, got pretty aggressive about about some things, uh, especially about um, uh, monkey patching all objects in order to to deal with um, or to provide the should um, syntax for things. Mm-hmm. And then they got some you know flack from people that said you know you're making this too complicated and you're injecting all sorts of stuff into my objects that I don't want for either good reasons or or principled reason, so to speak. Um, and then they sat back and thought about it and in, uh, uh, in RSpec 3 have removed all of that while providing the same experience with just a slightly different syntax uh, with this expect syntax. And I think that that tension between the sort of the test unit mini test um, faction and the RSpec faction um, made both so much better 
because you know our spec by 3.0 got rid of all the things that people didn't like and now just retains the stuff that people do like as far as mm-hmm. i can tell at least and test unit um gained the uh what, what do they call the syntax that our the like, so yeah, uh, so Minitest has the they just have a spec syntax that yeah, syntax right. that just like you can just load that library that's just a wrapper around the assertions and right. it's the ex- and it, did, it's it didn't always have it right uh, it it had it for a a, a while but I'm okay. not sure so it was Minitest if we're if we're talking like what was available in Rails that was not a thing so right. I think you would you'd still have to include Minitest Rails so okay. by default it's just assertions. Yeah, so I mean, when I think about the difference between uh, a commu- an open source community like Ruby and Rails, where uh, there can more easily be competing standards for test frameworks, and then tension between them as they they fix the complaints about them that are valid and add features that the others don't have, and you know, eventually end up being similar. Actually, yeah. that, that that it ends up in a much better place than iOS has as it relates to to test frameworks right and, 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 it, and it makes sense that it would right? and, and eventually you will always have you'll just be multilingual like it'll be painful but eventually you will figure out how to do both of those things unless you're extremely stubborn or you make all of your choices at the beginning and have never ever had to work on someone else's project the thing that the thing that i'm um that I wish that we had in our community because I, I like all the things I just said. I like the freedom to make your own thing. I like that you can submit a change or a, a fix to any project. I like you can fork it and fix it yourself if they're not maintained anymore. I like that you can you know help with the documentation. Like like all these things I like. What I don't like is that um, uh, the without massive support, Ruby is just not going to be fast enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in JavaScript, I think is, is getting that support right now uh, because since it's in every browser, right, there have been tens of millions of dollars poured into ultra low level optimization of JavaScript to make it better, you know, go from slow to, to not awful. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, so JavaScript and JavaScript engines, but the, we, we do have that problem where it's starting, it's starting to fork off where like, uh, we have the Chrome engine and we have, uh, like didn't Chrome fork WebKit? And then not include a bunch of things in it. They did, but I mean, as it relates to JavaScript performance, I think it's hard to see that. You know, the, the what are all them called? Like, so there's the was it Nitro and mm-hmm. and and um, Safari's new JavaScript engine. That that's not like it, it. It hasn't changed the language. The language is the same. It's just made the interpretation of it faster. Yeah, and um, I, I'd say that the thing that sort of that an Apple type ecosystem has going for it is that they've got the sort of resources you need to pour into very low level optimization. Right. And that helps with performance. And I, I just want to marry the sort of all the benefits that we get from open source with uh, a mechanism to fund the, the lowest level components um, a little bit more effectively. Right. Cause there's no real, glory with that i mean aaron patterson is still doing the boy uh he's still working on like adequate record and uh, just generally speeding things up but it seems to be uh, killing him a little on the inside 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's just, I mean, he, it's going to run as fast as Ruby can run. So, I mean, those right. are things that are within our control, but the the actual Ruby interpreter. Right, 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 right. right. Now, I mean, I, I guess the fact that the language is open source gives hope, right? And, and maybe this is the answer. I mean, I, I guess like a JRuby fan would say like, hey, dummy, use JRuby. Um, right. Because then you get the JVM, which is fast as hell, and the benefits of the Ruby syntax. So maybe I'm just back to loving open source altogether. Hey, look at how we came back. We brought it all back together. It's yeah. all great. All right, so I, I'm going to suggest we end this way. So I agree. You interviewed. No, I, I've got one more thing to do. Oh, <laughs> so, because I think <laughs> goodbye. It, I think it's fun. Um, cool. So I uh, successfully evaded you really learning much more about me and just talked about <laughs> a handful of topics in in tons of detail. <laughs> so let's uh, let's end with. Uh, Let's say three questions that I will answer in one sentence, no matter what they are. Uh, one uh, sentence. One sentence. This is not a question. First of all, this does not count. I've been going through genie scenarios. I know how this works. Okay, this is not the question. Uh, is will you be answering them all in one sentence or one sentence each? One sentence each. Okay. Uh, what is your greatest fear? Okay, give all three so that I can think about them. Okay, crap. <laughs> um, where, uh, if you were to take a vacation right now, where would it be to? And um, if you could have, hmm. Well, this is great because I've got nothing. I can't think of the, th the third Listen, one, just I'll, like with the genie wish. Exactly. I'll go with the first. So. Okay. My greatest fear is materialism. Okay. Because uh, I uh, I think it's the source of 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 most uh, unhappiness and has uh, quite the mechanized machine around uh, around it to make to sort of uh, infect it into your life. All right. That's good. I'm satisfied with that answer. My, if I could take a trip anywhere right now, I would. I would have one of those uh, like hundred thousand dollar RV buses, you know, like the the tour bus kinds, and uh, take my uh, family on like a eight week uh, driving camping trip where we picked up friends or family members for like three day stretches on the trip. That's great. <laughs> I think I would do that. I'm stealing it. I have a third question. Um, but I kind of want to go on your vacation now. <laughs> well, you can, I think can you, you swing down here. You, you count as either friend or family now. Yes. Which one question mark? <laughs> right. Uh, what are you going to work on today? Hmm. Um, I am working on a, uh, I, this is going to take more than one sentence. I'm working on an outbound dialing application that I think is super cool, actually. So um, that when the system knows that it, um, so so when an application knows that you uh, that someone should call someone else, it calls the first person the person that should be doing the calling in like a perfect world mm. and says, Hey, uh, I am going to patch you through to second person, you know? So, so 
so so the the situation would be like let's say the application knew that um there was a company that should be called um because they um i'll I'll give like a a real life example or like a, a consumer example so let's say the application saw on craigslist that someone was selling something you were looking for and uh it as soon as it saw that called you to say hey this is a bad example given that craigslist is by email but pretend it's by phone so it says hey someone on craigslist is selling what you said you were looking for um are you ready to talk to them right now and then it patches through to that person um uh, it patches that you know the two people together so it sort like of that a lot. converts uh, what would generally be seen as an outbound calling problem. It converts it into an inbound. I want that um, for um, making doctor's appointments. I keep forgetting to do it. And calling uh, friends and family. I keep forgetting to call. Like I, I remember, hey, I should call you know, my, my mom or my dad. And um, like I, I make a note of it somewhere. And then it just goes off somewhere. I don't know where that note goes. So. It's a, you know, so it's a good... Like not to toot my own app horn here, it's a good app. It's like a good idea. It like it works. So fourth there, question: What would that horn sound like? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's yes. a there's a fundamental difference. Um, <laughs> so on that point, I had uh, Jameis Buck on uh, uh, as a guest a while ago, and he wrote this series, this story called uh, Basil and Fabian. It's like a like a wizard tale that teaches about algorithms, and I read my kids the the uh, the first couple chapters last night. And the only way I could get them really interested in it because it was late at night and they were tired was if I read it in voices. So I've got <laughs> which was absurd. I'm glad that that was not being recorded. But anyhow, back to the app. I was really hoping you would go into that and we could finish up the podcast with these voices. Yeah, right. So but that's fine. The I, I tell you, there is a fundamental difference. I think between getting a reminder to call someone and getting a call basically instead of the reminder. I agree. I agree. Uh, having to look up the phone, having to prepare yourself because when somebody calls you, it's just, well, this is happening. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, you're, you're going to deal with it basically. I want you to call me at noon, uh, to contact my doctor and actually make an appointment because I haven't made two doctor's appointments. I need to, this week just because i have been working and like the some reason the like cognitive process is just overwhelming to me to actually find the phone number which i have saved in my phone and call them and yeah. set it up if if they would have called if they would call me i would say yeah i'd like an appointment so like okay, right after bye. we get off this podcast if if your doctor called you just you know and said hey um do you have time at blah 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 you'd like take the call right absolutely yeah Absolutely. Exactly. There's nothing that would stop me. It's the me doing something that's the problem. And I would love to automate as many of those things as possible. So anyways, the app does that. And cool. it's pretty cool. Like it even has sleep. So, you know, if you're like, uh, I'm busy, call me back. You know, call me back in a bit. I like that. It'll Can you reply with a uh, with a text? Um, Look at me. I'm, I'm going to expand your... Well, it's your so I... Uh, is, so the app uses Twilio to make all this happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, it, uh, texting is possible. Like, so it could, but it doesn't because it's all, this is all stuff that has to happen by phone. So I don't, I do not want to add anything to this at all. No, but. anyway, so I'm working on that. So I've got, Ooh. uh, and, uh, 
my kids are, so my, my wife is, uh, is traveling back here today from a, a trip that she took. So it's, uh, and I'm working from, I work from home and the, uh, <laughs> the kids are here. So <laughs> there's going to be some amount of making grilled cheese sandwiches. Uh, there should always be some amount of making grilled cheese sandwiches. So, um, well, thanks so much for having me on your show. You're welcome. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to find time to record this show and, uh, you know, I'm glad I was able to fit you in. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I was really hoping something funnier would come out of my mouth right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to go with my standard, which is if, uh, if anyone wants to know more about me, uh, I'm barely known on Twitter. <laughs>